Now, as you might have realized already, we are going to be starting a new book. We went through uh, the Gospel of Mark, and now we are going to start with the uh, book of Acts. And the first thing that you might have noticed is that my uh, title is an introduction to the Acts of Jesus, which is normally not what you would think of. You would think of the Acts of the Apostles, and you would not be wrong. Indeed, the book is the book of Acts of the Apostles. But I think what my my uh, whole idea in naming this the introduction to the book of Acts of Jesus is to be more Christocentric, to make sure that Christ is the one that we point out and not be uh, apostolic-centric um, in this, that we we see that it is all the things that the apostles did, the acts of the apostles in light of the acts of Jesus himself. But I think it goes deeper than that. The acts of the apostles um, is, is a book which probably should be called Acts of the Holy Spirit, who gives testimony of Christ. Because it's very obvious, you, you start to read this book, that it's about the Lord, the Holy Spirit. Um, And he's behind all the work that is done by the apostles to lay the foundation of the New Testament church. And so he's the prime mover in in the church's establishment and growth. And I want you to see that he's also the uh, prime mover in and how the church is to relate. And so we think about how the Holy Spirit is in the process of building the church of Jesus Christ. He is by, uh, it, he is building it by and through the power of the Holy Spirit. He is building the church of Jesus Christ. And the reason that this church will ever live and flourish in a greater sense if it if it indeed does is because we've come to know the blessing of the holy spirit on our labors we know that it, we would always love to fill up every one of the seats in here but it's not my job or your job to fill the seats Our jobs are to take the gospel into the world. And if God converts their souls and they're now looking for a place to worship, that they will come and fill the seats. And in that, my job is to fill those people who are sitting in the seats. And so we see in the book of Acts that this is totally unique. This is a book that requires careful, independent study. And in fact, the very nature of the book uh, requires that it be tackled independently because it's not like any other book in the Bible. 
Jesus made a proclamation that when he was here on earth, he says, I will build my church. And the books, book of Acts tells us how he actually did that. Without this book, we would really no, have no clue how this church began or how it was developed. And so Acts is an action story of God. Uh, in, in, the, in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we get four very important accounts of Jesus' life. But here we see that this is, this is a book that talks about what Jesus said and did while he was on earth, but now it, it talks about what is recorded of what he does now as he's in heaven. And now the Holy Spirit is with the people here on earth. The book of Acts connects Jesus' work to the rest of the New Testament. And as one writer said, Acts is one of the most important and influential books of all time. I think it's very interesting how uh, R.C. Sproul was talking about uh, a story about a 12th century scholar. His name was William M uh, Mitchell Ramsey, and he was a skeptic about Christianity. He decided that he would trace the missionary journeys of Paul in the book of Acts to try to prove that there was no evidence at all for anything that was actually written in the book as factual and true. And so he looked for the evidences in, in the landscape, in the ruins, in the titles of local rulers and magistrates. He visited all kinds of foreign countries that of those people who would have lived in Jerusalem. And Ramsey became overwhelmed with the evidence that the book of Acts was absolutely true and absolutely factual. And he actually was converted. He became a believer because he said every time he turned over a shovel, he found evidence of exactly those things that uh, Luke described in Acts. But why would God want us to know the factual historical story of what the apostles did after Christ ascended and how the church age actually began? Why would God go through all the trouble to give us that? Well, for one thing, God wants us to know the different ways in which he works at different times. We are in the dispensation of grace and God wants us to know how he works. But the second reason is God wants us to know how things work when his son is in heaven and now the Holy Spirit is here working on earth. He wants us to know the history of the church and how it came into existence. The one thing that we have to keep in mind while we're doing all this and looking at all of this is, and I hope you don't miss this point, our faith is based on, uh, not based on personal feeling, but historical fact. And then finally, God wants us to realize that our involvement in the church is truly linked to Him and His apostles. You see, your connection to the local church isn't a light matter. Christ 
gave himself for his bride. That's the local church. All these people that think that I can be a Christian without being connected to that bride, they're fooling themselves. God wants us to know that there is an eternal value to our church involvement. But it will also be something that makes our witness effective. You talk about Christ, and at one point, someone is going to look in the Bible and see that that is his bride. And then you say, yeah, but I'm not connected to her. They're not going to see the evidence in your life. The book of Acts is the initial church age truth that people need to see. God wants church age believers to understand that from the time Jesus ascended into heaven and in order for his people to accomplish anything, they needed to be in the Spirit. They needed to be part of his body. And we need to know that Jesus, the resurrected Savior, is making his first point right here in the first five verses. There are many introductory observances that can come from the book, uh, this book as it came from the pen of Dr. Luke. If we look at the first four verses, we see that it's actually in the Greek, grammatically speaking, one long sentence. But remember, the book of Acts is the second inspired uh, book written by Luke. And it opens in a very unique way. At the beginning of this inspired book, Luke in some ways gives Theophilus some information as to why he's taken time to write him another massive document. So let's go ahead and look at the uh, turn to our text for this morning. It's in the book of Acts chapter 1, and we'll be focusing on the first five verses. Starting with verse 1, it says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, 
we can see in Luke's prologue, he summarizes the gospel of Luke. He basically says, in my first account, I composed all about that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken into heaven after he had been uh, by the Holy Spirit, uh, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. And so the a number of truths that we can see serve as prerequisites to the Holy Spirit's work in the church. The first, pre- the first thing that we see as a prerequisite is the fulfillment of Christ. And then the second thing is the ascension of Christ. And then we see the continuation of the ministry of Christ. And so by virtue of the fact that Luke introduces Acts in this way, we can immediately think in terms of Acts being carefully researched as a sequel to the Gospel of Luke. The opening words of the text immediately remind us of Luke's first composition, the the Gospel of Luke. In Luke 1, 1, 1 through 14, or through 4, Luke said that he wanted to carefully investigate everything so he could put down the sequence of events concerning Jesus Christ so Theophilus might know the truth. Now, I seriously doubt that we even begin to grasp this Herculean effort that Luke has trying to write this. I mean, if we were to write something historical, we would go to the library. We would use references or we would use our computer and we would sit there and look up all this stuff. We would be able to research it and then write it. But in Luke's day, he had to personally track down all of this historical data. He had to track down every single fact. He had to visit people and places. He had to record specific names and specific times. Luke tackled all of this and God's Spirit inspired what he wrote in both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And so when you go through this book, you begin to realize that history does have meaning. God has a plan for his church, and he unfolds it here, and he still is unfolding it even today. The plan right now is a plan in which, as James Montgomery Boyce says, and I quote, reaching down to the mass of fallen humanity and saving some hell-bent men and women, bringing them into new fellowship, the church, and beginning to work in them in such a way that glory is brought to Jesus Christ. End quote. James Montgomery Boyce, very intelligent man. I had the opportunity of, of hearing him preach down in Chicago. It was absolutely incredible. The man just was able to preach the word like like no one else. But there are many people who profess Christ who want to look at this book of Acts as mainly feelings or experiences. I want to stress, and I'll keep doing this, 
this critical point that our faith is not based on our feelings or experiences. Our faith is based on historical, biblical facts pertaining to Jesus Christ. While at the same time, we understand that we indeed experience the outworking of the Holy Spirit. So it's not without experience, but our faith isn't based on that. So looking again at verse 1 of our text, we see the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. I want to point out something. That word, the name Theophilus, actually means one who loves God. You may not have realized that. Theophilus means one who loves God. And although this was written specifically to a man who had this name, the book of Acts is actually for everyone who loves God. Any Gentile or Jew who loves God. But we need to realize that it was very customary for wealthy individuals to sponsor someone, enabling them to research and write books. A book like Acts was written on a scroll, and this is amazing, it was probably close to 35 feet long, this scroll. And it, that's actually the longest length that a scroll could be because anything else would be too bulky to handle. And so there's no question that Acts was widely circulated among early churches because we have many manuscripts that have been found and preserved by God. Two main manuscripts which preserve this history. The first one is the Alexandrian Greek text, and the other one is the Western Greek text. Now, many believe that the Alexandrian Greek text, which contains 18,401 words, is one that it actually came from Luke. And the Western Greek text, which actually contains 19,983 words, is a copy of the Alexandrian text, and there's a few revisions and elaborations in that Western copy. It adds some historical narration, and it was probably done by the early copyists. But God has preserved several Greek manuscripts which have been copied from both the Alexandrian Western uh, text to establish Acts as a truly inspired book and truly inspired Word of God. And we need to understand that in Luke's day, there was no publishing companies to, or printing machines. And so normally wealthy men would typically supply the finances for a major literary project like this. And so it's possible that this is what Theophilus was doing. Perhaps Luke had at one time been the medical doctor of uh, Theophilus. And as a result, he was commissioned by him to research and write historical facts pertaining to Jesus Christ. Now, Theophilus was apparently a very important man who was obviously very interested in the things pertaining to Jesus. And so it's, it's probable that he commissioned Luke to carefully research this. If you would please turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, and we'll look there at 
verses 1 through 4 as well. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, starting with verse 1. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered to uh, delivered them to us, it seems good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Now you probably know that there, notice that there's this difference in the way that Luke identifies Theophilus here in the book of Acts as he did in the book of the Gospel of Luke. We notice that there's an elimination of the prefixed most excellent prior to the name Theophilus. Now in Luke's gospel, the words most excellent are words to refer to someone in high position of responsibility in the Roman world. These words do not so much refer to one's character, but one's position of leadership. And we see this also in Acts 23.26 and Acts 24.3 as to the way he addresses Felix. There he says to the most excellent governor Felix. And then in 26.25 he says, I am not mad, most noble, uh, or Festus, not Felix. Um, or actually it was Felix there, it's Festus and in, in, uh uh, 26, 25. But here we see by eliminating this prefix most excellent from Theophilus, Acts 1, 1, it appears that something has changed. Many people believe that Luke's first gospel had a great impact on Theophilus and since that time became a believer or at least a more stable believer. It's possible that either Theophilus had become a Christian as a result, Rome removed him from leadership, so that he no longer had that title of most excellent, or that Theophilus had become a Christian and no longer wanted the address of most excellent by other brothers and sisters. He saw himself as just being one of them. The, the more one understands the grace and greatness of God, the less one is impressed with your own self and titles. How true is that? But in either case, it would appear that Theophilus was a serious believer and he was interested in pure truth. If this conclusion is accurate, then we can observe that the thing that is brought to this man, uh, that brought this man to faith was careful, systematic research and preservation of the Word of God. We have to realize that Luke, we should say Dr. Luke, was no gullible simpleton. 
but neither was Theophilus. Luke carefully researched and investigated everything. And so Luke is given an account, and at the end of verse 1 says, all that Jesus began both to do and teach. You see, the power of trans transformed hearts and minds comes from a careful analysis of the Word of God, which is to be thoroughly and accurately accurately researched and communicated. And so in the case of Luke's first writing of the Gospel of Luke, Luke researched and wrote it to instruct Theophilus concerning all that Jesus began to do and teach from the time he was physically born until the time he was taken up to glory. And so in verse 2 of our text, it says, until the day in which he was taken up after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. And so you see, in the case of the second writing of Acts, Luke continues the story of all that Jesus was doing by the power of the Holy Spirit through his apostles now that he was physically gone. And as you look at this book as a whole, the one thing that strikes you is how, how incredibly offensive Christianity is in the context of bursting into the world. I mean, just about everyone was offended by this message. The Jews, for example, they, they are going, well, yeah, well, this Jesus came and, 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 uh, we didn't know he was the Messiah. The book of, of Acts talks about this bad report of getting rid of their Messiah. And the name Jesus? The name Jesus emphasized that he was Savior, not just the Jewish Messiah. This is a book about the church age that wasn't popular among the realm of the people who were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And the Christians make it even worse when they start to preach first to the Jews. Well, you know, we're taking this first to you guys. Well, okay, so you're saying that we're responsible for getting rid of the Messiah, and so you're going to take it to us first? It just doesn't seem like the right approach, does it? It seems like that's that's the wrong wrong way to start off this conversation. But then they were offending the non-Jews as well. And on a, on a number of levels, they insisted on teaching non-Jews from Jewish scriptures, especially the, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Jewish uh, scripture. They used the Old Testament to show Jesus. They used the scripture that even in the instruction of non-Jews in what Christianity was all about, these non-Jews are going, oh, wait a minute, because we have a materialistic point of view. And you're, you're teaching us the, the Jewish point of view. And so they were very offended because they were materialistic. And they 
they offended them by introducing this supernatural element to the Christian message of Jesus uh, resurrecting from the dead and then all these supernatural uh, miracles that were being performed by the apostles. These were things that they found offensive. And then there were people at the other opposite end of the, the spectrum. Those were the Gnostics where they viewed the human flesh and human body as offensive, as evil, as things to be avoided. They believed that real development was when an individual would only go into the spiritual realm. Everything with the flesh is left behind. And so they're offended by this resurrection of the body God raising Jesus' physical body from the dead? You're glorifying Christ and glorifying the body of Christ? That's, that's an instrument of evil in their eyes. But here it says that it's actually an instrument that can be used for righteousness and for the glory of God. They were also offended as they listened to the language of exclusivity. Isn't this something that everyone has a problem with, right? The language of Peter, for example, one who stands up in, in Acts 4.12 and says, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You know, you want to be saved? You need to be right with God. You need a relationship with Him because He is the only way. You know what? How many Christians have you talked to who they go, yep, it's Jesus and Jesus alone. Then you go, well, what about the this person who has never heard the Gospel? Oh, they can be saved. Here's the biggest offense is to say if you are not a Christian and have the blood of Christ to cover your sins, you're going to hell. Most people like to think everyone is going to heaven as if we get the front seat. No. You tell someone that those people who are Islamic and Muslim or whatever are going to hell apart from Christ, they're offended immediately. And yet, they'll say, well, there's no other name under heaven in which uh, given among men by which we must be saved. Folks, you can't have it both ways. Christ alone, apart from Him, you are hell-bound. It's in Him alone. And I hope you understand why we take the Gospel to a lost and dying world. We go, you know what? We need to take this gospel of salvation even to those people who are offended. Let me change that. Especially to those people who are offended. But you see, the offense that Luke has, they, they were one of these societies that was primarily polytheistic. It means that they would believe in all kinds of gods. They didn't care. There was a God for this and a God for that. 
It was the God of the day, the God du jour, right? They didn't care. The Romans would put up anything that was polytheistic, you know, all these other gods. But when you said that it was only one God, there was only one way, that was an offense. Especially when you said the one God has a true triune nature. That was appalling to them. And so, if you look again at verse 2 of our text, it says, He, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom He had chosen. The Holy Spirit would come and the work would continue. Luke writes with certainty about Christ from His birth to His ascension to the coming of the Holy Spirit to the Gospel being proclaimed to the world for the establishment of the church. John MacArthur says this, one of the great tragedies, one of the great tragedies of the church is ignorance when it comes to, to us in Hosea in these words. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. You know that, that um, verse there in Hosea, there are some times when the churches want to, uh, they, they go with the translation that says, my people are destroyed for lack of vision. So they go, I got a vision. And they try to use that. It's actually, the, the word vision can fit, but it's actually for lack of knowledge. MacArthur continues by saying, God never puts a premium on ignorance but that the church suffers from. So, I want you to notice the connection between what Jesus was doing and what Jesus was teaching. Because most people are infatuated with miracles. But Jesus performed the miracles as divine credentials for His powerful preaching. Christ did things so He could teach things. This is an interesting principle here. Sometimes we have to do things in order to teach things. Powerful, impacting teaching and preaching often stems from doing things. So you sit there and you present the Word of God to someone and you think, oh, it's not being, you know, it's not as fruitful as I think. It is the Holy Spirit who applies those, those works that you do. And then there is, is plentiful bounty by His work. You don't know who is watching. You don't know what is going to happen in the hearts of those people when they see you actually living it out. Orthodoxy is what we believe. Orthopraxy is acting upon that. It's what we do. Does our orthodoxy uh, fall in line with our orthopraxy? And here's the incredible, mind-boggling thing that's happening here. is that Jesus Christ actually uses sinful humans who are empowered by the Holy Spirit to do His work. And so this work is connected 
to the same work that Christ was involved with while he was here on earth. God classifies what is happening now through his people by the power of the Holy Spirit in the same context that he classified the work of his son while he was physically here on earth. In verse 2, again it says, the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles. So we wonder what those commandments are. Well, if you please turn to uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, and verses 44 and 45. Luke chapter 24, and starting with verse 44. And we're going to go beyond this, so don't turn back until we, we're going to go through verse 49. Here it says, Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. You see, these things have been in, uh, have included the law and the prophets and the Psalms as it related to his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and the entire Grace Age gospel so that we could take the gospel to the whole world. And then continuing with verse 46, it says, then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it is necessary for, uh, for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with the power from on high. If you notice there in verse 46, it says, thus it is written. Bible commentator, Bible commentator Matthew Henry says this, thus was written in the sealed book of the divine counsels from eternity the volume of that book of the covenant of redemption, and thus was written in the opening, the open book of the Old Testament among the things revealed. And thus, and therefore thus, it behooved Christ to suffer, for the divine counsels must be performed, and care taken that no word of God fall to the ground. End quote. It's important for these men that were eyewitnesses because they were taking the things that, that were being fulfilled to the people. These apostles were taught by Jesus Christ that forgiveness of sins could be found by faith in Him. And they showed how the Old Testament pointed to that very thing. So their job was to be eyewitnesses of these, these things throughout the world and to start in Jerusalem. Jesus says in Luke 24.4 that they were then to take this message out to the whole world. 
But do not do this until you are endued with the power from on high. Or in some versions it says, until they are, were clothed with power from on high. So we see at the uh, Luke ends with verse 2 with these words, the apostles whom he had chosen. It's hard to quibble about the doctrine of election because Luke believed it and taught it to Theophilus right here. It's interesting that Luke himself wasn't an apostle, but he certainly recognized the doctrine of election and and in becoming one. And Luke isn't jealous or envious. He just reveals the fact that the apostles were chosen by Jesus Christ. They weren't self-appointed. They weren't appointed by committee. They weren't appointed by a senate or a church. They were personally chosen and elected by Jesus Christ. Now, if you want to begin your church age experience with proper theology, start with the fact that you too have been elected to salvation. You are not elected to be an apostle, but you are chosen just like he chose them. So now moving to verse 3. It says, To whom he also presented himself alive after suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now, this is a very important point in Christianity. Biblical Christianity is a historical religion based on historical facts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not a a religion based on philosophy or idea. Every false religion can go forth without their founder. Mormonism can go ahead without Joseph Smith or Brigham Young. Buddhism can go without Buddha. Islam without Muhammad. But that doesn't happen with biblical Christianity. Without a risen Savior, biblical Christianity crumbles. And that's why it's so important that we understand the historical fact that Jesus did rise from the dead and He is now alive. It's critical that Jesus spent time after His suffering and resurrection with His apostles because He was about to leave and launch the church age. It would become their responsibility to, ref- to inform the world about this reality. And He apparently gave them many convincing proofs of what was going on. It's interesting that Luke doesn't use the word signs there. He uses the word proofs. The word proofs is tekmirion. That's different from the word signs. Signs is simeon. And and those are things you see and observe. It's a a marker token. But you see, uh, tekmirion is convincing proof. And those are designed to be decisive signs that you see by positive tests. They are from which uh, you find something to is sure and plain that it's it's indefensible or defensible evidence. 
Dr. S. Lewis Johnson says that this is interesting because this word tecmerion is actually a medical term. And actually, huh, Dr. Luke, he's using a medical term. And here is why we see this. Just imagine if you're going to a doctor with a problem. Typically, the doctor will ask you a question looking for signs or symptoms of something. If, on the other hand, the doctor suspects something based on the symptoms, he will run tests to determine whether the signs or symptoms have fact and reality. He will run tests that give him that convincing proof. Tecmerion. Convincing proof. What this tells us is that Jesus actually did many physical things showing and proving that he was truly who he says he was and that he is physically alive. Luke is is the only writer here that tells us that Christ's post-resurrection appearance lasted 40 days. What this tells us is that there is no evidence that can be offered or will ever be offered that will deny Jesus really did rise from the dead. The faith of the early church and the faith of our church is based on this critical fact. But again, notice, our faith isn't based on feelings or experience. It's based on historical fact and evidence of our resurrected Savior. Now, what I find intriguing about this and also Paul's account of the post-resurrection appearance in 1 Corinthians 15 is that you would normally think if the goal of the church age is to take the gospel to the whole world, wouldn't the best thing be that Jesus would have shown himself and these convincing proofs to the entire unbelieving world? If he really wanted to save the whole world, you would think he would start appearing to all of these emperors in Rome and the governors in Judea and Samaria. Most would think that the the end would justify the means. And Jesus could have just made a real evangelical impact. What would be more impactful than to have Jesus show up all the world all over the world to unbelievers, showing his nail uh, scars in his hands and feet. But see, this is where churches today are making fatal theological mistakes because they think their job is to create an environment that will impress and reach the lost world. God offers salvation to the lost world The offer of the gospel is believe on Jesus Christ and repent of your sin and any any sinner may be saved. But God must first move upon the heart and open the eyes and ears. There are many people that have and own Bibles, but there are very, actually very few who see and understand the deep marvelous things in those Bibles. Christ's assignment was to suffer and die. Our assignment is to tell people about it. The work of the church is a continuation of the work of Christ. And that's clear in verse 
chapter uh, verse 3, that during these 40 days, Jesus gave his apostles instructions that would enable them to lead the, the early church. This instruction was teaching them about the kingdom of God. And this became very critical to the book of Acts. Remember, the apostles had expected Christ to set up a political kingdom here on earth to deliver Israel from the Romans and to reign upon an earthly throne in Jerusalem. Jesus had to teach his apostle that his kingdom is essentially spiritual in nature. It's a heavenly kingdom that comes from above by God's grace and changing and transforming the wicked hearts of men and women so they willingly submit to the rule and reign of Christ in their lives. Christ's kingdom is manifest in His church of which He is the head. Not popes, not kings. This kingdom of Christ through the power of the Gospel subdues enemies and makes them subjects. Subdues kings and kingdoms of the earth by the almighty power of Christ. We see this in Revelation 11.15 where it says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there was a loud voice in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. So continuing with verse 4 of our text, it says, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. I want to tell you the promise of the Father. Um, but first I, first I want to talk to you about regeneration, because the promise of the Father is the gift of the Holy Spirit to the church. He who would proceed from the Father and be given by the Son to gather His church on the day of Pentecost. But we need to ask another question here first. Didn't the chosen apostles of our Lord and the number of His disciples already have the Holy Spirit? Didn't they already have this? Why did they need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit? Weren't they saved men and women? Were they not those who had regenerate hearts before Pentecost? The answer of the Scriptures is that they were. Judas is the obvious exception to this, this group of apostles, but those who believe had faith and had already been given the work of regeneration through the Holy Spirit and, and performed uh, through uh, the Holy Spirit in their hearts. They had true saving faith in Jesus Christ. And so we need to remember that Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again or you cannot enter or see the kingdom of God. But even those who did see and did enter the kingdom of God at that time did not have clear theological understanding of regeneration nor the church in relationship to baptism of the Holy Spirit. That was because the Spirit had not yet been given to the whole church. Christ was building His church, but the church had not yet been given the gifts 
that she would need to see the local church raised up and the spiritual building uh, raised up by the apostles. And so the Lord was getting ready to leave and return and sit at the right hand of the Father. He had not yet revealed extensively to the apostles all these wonderful doctrinal truths of his fuller revelation that the, all of the believers that would comp, uh, comprise the New Testament church. And so in Acts chapter 2, we see the birth of the New Testament church. And that would come by the Spirit's ministry through the apostles. The Lord uh, ended up saving the best wine for last. If you'd please turn to John chapter 14 and verses 15 through 18. John chapter 14 and verses 15 through 18. Here it says, if you love me, keep my commands, uh, my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. You see, in regeneration, he was dwelling with them already. But in his work of baptism into the body of Christ, this had not come yet. And so let's take just a little closer look at the individual believer's experience of regeneration of the ministry of the Holy Spirit before Christ's ascension. Turn to John chapter 4 and verses 4 through 14. Here's starting with verse 4. But he needed to go through Samaria... So he came to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, um, Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then 
do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. You see, the gift of God that is mentioned here is Christ's giving of himself in salvation. Salvation from sin comes by faith. It comes by receiving the gift of life through faith and Christ giving it. In the giving of the gift, Christ gives the Holy Spirit. But here it is represented by the spiritual picture of living water in the heart of the person drinking it. The living water is a picture of the Holy Spirit's work in this woman's heart when she would drink it in the words of Christ concerning how she should obtain it. She would drink it in, not only to be washed and cleansed from her sin, but she would continually be blessed and refreshed and satisfied and given spiritual life and strength by the same means. This is how all Old Testament saints were saved. They drank in the words of the promise that were given them concerning Christ. And these words were preached to them by God's prophets. Isaiah 55.1 says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come by and eat. What are the waters? The waters are the promise of God to the thirsting soul. Those waters are the gift of God found in Jesus Christ our Lord that he would come, live, and die, and rise again and ascend to heaven on their behalf. They look forward by faith to the coming of the Savior and the mighty works of redemption that he would do. Those who believed were indeed regenerate, and they were given the gift of the Holy Spirit working in them and dwelling in them as uh, living water. This gift came by the Holy Spirit's working in them, giving them life and hope and salvation. If you would turn to uh, John chapter 7, and I hope this helps tie it up a little bit here. I know this gets confusing, but if we uh, read John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. Here it says, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. When it says that the Holy Spirit was not yet given, it doesn't mean that the Old Testament saints did not receive the Spirit's working in regeneration. 
Psalm 51.11 says, Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. That is Old Testament, folks. It's true that they didn't experience all the fullness of the Spirit's ministry of spiritual understanding and the power. But Christ had not yet been glorified and the church had not come uh, come into existence yet. And so these things that the Holy Spirit, what it does is it gives us real assurance and appreciation for the gift of faith. And so here finally in verse 5, it says, For John truly baptized you with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, I hope that you can see that this is because God the Holy Father and God the Son wanted this fuller teaching and understanding of God the Holy Spirit's work in the life of the church. And it is to be linked to our Savior's glorification and ascension that the Father waited until the day of Pentecost to fulfill His promise. It was Christ who laid down His life, purchased the church with His own blood. It was He who paid the purchase price in His suffering and thereby was given all authority in heaven and earth to build His church. It was He who purchased the gift of God for all God's elect. Old Testament and new as he went to the cross. He bought, he bought her so that the work of regeneration could be performed upon our hearts. It's Christ who because of his suffering he bought you and had the right and authority in connection with the promise of God to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and to place you in His own spiritual body, the church. We need to understand that regeneration and baptism of the Holy Spirit as acts of the Spirit are not identical. In conversion of an individual person, they are done together in connection with each other in the Father's time. They are done according to the Spirit's working in succession, but they are not identical. First of all comes regeneration. The sovereign work of God, the Holy Spirit, in your life. He has taken you that were dead in your sin and trespasses. And He has taken out that heart of stone circumcised that heart so that the sinner is receptive to the word of the gospel that is preached. So you are made alive. He opens your eyes, opens your ears, and you receive. And at that point, you are baptized into the Holy Spirit. You are now saved. It is not until repentance and faith comes into play. And so the believer then exercises their faith in Christ, having been saved from all their sin, having been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. 
than the believer's placement into the body. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14 says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, and all have been made to drink into one Spirit. For in fact the body is not one member, but many. You see, the Spirit is given in relationship to Christ's church. Proceeded from His being sent by the Father and the Son on the day of Pentecost after Christ's work was complete. And it was in this sense that the Holy Spirit was given on that glorious day. The gathering of Christ's church. The church is called ecclesia, the called out ones. It's all those who have a regenerate heart, who have been born again. They come together as the called out ones, as the body of Christ, as the bride of Christ. And so, on this basis, we can say that God's elect in the Old Testament were regenerated by the Spirit. They believed the promises given them, but we have greater res revelation through the baptism of the Holy Spirit as New Testament believers go into this world, into this age. But we need to remember that the elect of old and the elect now, nowadays. Same Spirit. Same Spirit. Change them from dead to alive. Same Spirit is the same Spirit of regeneration. Old Testament saints, they didn't have as much revealed to them as we do. The Apostle had the Spirit before Pentecost, but they needed the Spirit to instruct and to, to take their lives into the world and to instruct the church. The coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost was the answer to Christ's prayer to the Father. And the prayers of the apostles and disciples gathered to have power and witness to His resurrection to be able to preach His gospel. Folks, we don't need a charismatic movement in this day. We don't need to reestablish the revelatory gifts in order to see sinners converted, in order to see the church grow and become strong. We don't need those revelatory gifts because we have the Word of God, which was the proof of the apostles. They were eyewitnesses. But what we very much need is the power of the Holy Spirit to attend the preaching of His Word 
Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. So that the truth of the Bible, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints might be established and, the, and Christ's kingdom might come. And that His church would grow, grow and flourish. Folks, He has given this great blessing of His church gathered. And we need to pray that as we go forth into this world, that we would take that gospel to sinful people to save their wretched souls just like He saved mine and yours. So let's pray to that end. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have had great mercy upon us that You have called us to this great task to which You have given Your church in the world. We have the Gospel. Thank You for these forerunners, the apostles, the men to whom You gave Your Word and who have given their Word to us. We have it right here in the New Testament. An apostolic word that is sure and true. Lord, help us to re-speak it in our day, in our generation, without trying to make it relevant because it is relevant. Lord, Help us to take Your Word as guided by the same Spirit that You gave them to do the work that is put before us just as You gave them the work to put the Scripture together and to take this Word to the world. Help us to apply it to the hearts and lives today in the same manner. And we pray this in Jesus' most glorious and precious name. Amen.